Good morning. Welcome to 2024. It's already started out fabulous. Maybe some of us. We're going to be looking at Revelation today. Yay! Everybody's favorite. Uh, plan to start back our Wednesday lunch, learn, pray Bible study on the 17th. So not this coming Wednesday, but the next. And we are planning on spending the majority of the year in Revelation. Yay! I am looking forward to it, actually, as you'll see today. So as we're getting there, it's the last book. For those of you that are confused, let's go to the last book, first chapter. As we're getting there today, I, I wonder, as we get ready, we have New Year's Same Jesus as our title today. I wonder how you picture Jesus. When, when I say Jesus, when someone else says Jesus, when you read about Jesus, when you hear Jesus, what image comes to your mind? What do you think about? What emotions come to you when you think about Jesus? Are you washed anew with fresh awe and a sense of worship when you hear Jesus, or is it just another name at this point, just another word? I'm convinced that it is the most important thing, like A.W. Tozer's quote says, when it comes into our minds, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it will drive our lives, our decisions, the way we see the world, everything about it. So what do you picture? What comes into your imagination, into the imagination of your mind when you close your eyes and conjure an image of Christ Jesus in your mind's eye, what do you see? What do you picture? Is it, is it something like this? Maybe. Pale, blue-eyed, white Jesus? Is that what you think of? I'm sorely mistaken. I'm, I'm, I hate to bring you bad news, but that probably ain't what he looked like. I'm pretty sure Middle Eastern Jew in the first century didn't have blue eyes, didn't have pale skin. Or is it this guy? Flowing locks, thin, wimpy beard, Jesus. Or, or maybe this guy. Meek, meek and mild, petting a sweet little pet lamb, shepherd, Jesus. Or maybe we just came out of Christmas season. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's like, you know, singing sweet lullabies to sweet baby Jesus. Jesus is what you picture. Or, or maybe you're a huge fan of the chosen, so you picture this. Some of you probably picture that now after watching that show. Now, we're probably getting a little closer now. That's probably a little closer than what it looked like instead of Italian, Eastern, or Western European Jesus. It probably looked a little more like this. First century Middle Eastern Judean Jew would kind of look something like this. Scripture says this in Isaiah 53 too. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So he probably looked a little more like this, to be honest. Just an average Jewish male in the first century, Galilee, Judea. But does it really matter what Jesus looked like? Or is it more important that we know who he is? 
and what he did and what he's going to do. I think those things are more important. As you picture those things this morning, as we dive into this together, New Year, same Jesus in Revelation 1, that's what we're going to take a look at. We're going to see what Revelation 1 says about Jesus and, and compare that to maybe what you were picturing just a couple of minutes ago. Because like the, the Holman New Testament commentary says, Revelation may not satisfy our curiosity concerning Jesus' outward appearance, but it provides all the hope and all the encouragement we could ask for with these eloquent symbol, symbols letting us feel and connect with who he really is. So let's get into who Jesus is and what that means for you and hopefully what you and I will then do about it after we leave here today. So we're going to read Revelation 1. If you would and if you're able and if you're not, that is perfectly fine. But let's stand this morning in honor and reverence of the reading of God's holy infallible word. We're going to read 16 whole verses, so you're going to stand for a while. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ and all he saw. The one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, the glory and dominion are his forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 12, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. Verse 15. We're getting there. We're almost there. Don't let your legs get weary. His feet were like fine bronze and as it is, fire, as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. Mm. Father, I pray that you speak to me and through me to all of us today, that we hear your word, and we hear your word, and we hear your word. O Israel, hear the word of the Lord. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Mm. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. It's not what we think of when we think of the book of Revelation, but that's what it's about. It's literally how the book starts. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The final revealing of who Jesus is and what he will do because of what he has done. Yes, sure. The book of Revelation is the divinely inspired portrait of good engulfed by evil until good prevails at the end. Yes, it does talk about a lot of things that are, can be difficult to understand and difficult to digest, but that is not the point of the book. The point of the book, the point of this letter that John wrote to seven churches in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, is the final revealing of Jesus Christ. But most, funda most fundamentally, this book, it is a book that reveals who Jesus is ultimately and what that means for our life. That's the point of Revelation, not to study it ad nauseum to try to be able to predict the end of the world. I think, side note, not in the notes, probably going to make somebody mad when I say this, I think that that is a waste of time and has done more harm to the church than good, trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back. Jesus himself said, only the Father knows. Why would we spend time on a futile thing like that? I don't know. But this book is about why we should obey him and live for him. And as the HNTC says, after all, Revelation both opens and closes with promises of blessings to those who heed this letter's teachings. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 22, verse 7. Not to those who intellectually decipher its prophetic landscapes, the Holman says so eloquently. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is apocalypsis in the Greek where we get the English word apocalypse. Now when I say apocalypse, do you think Jesus or do you think scary stuff? Amazing how Satan has done that, isn't it? The word is about Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the Greek apocalypse, where we get the word ap apocalypse, where we get the word apocalypse, isn't about all this terrible stuff per se, although there is some terrible things that happen in the book of Revelation. The apocalypse is this. The final revealing of Jesus is this. Are you ready? Jesus wins. That's what it's about. Forget all the rest of it if you get bogged down. When you get bogged down in it... Come up and take a breath and remind yourself, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The word, that word apocalypsis means the uncovering of something hidden. It's used numerous times in the New Testament, numerous times, always about revealing something about the mystery of the gospel. It continues there in, in the first chapter, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants or slaves the things which must soon take place, must soon take place. If, if you think about that, that doesn't sound right. This was written, depending on which scholar you listen to, some think it was 
prior to the falling of the temple in, in the 60s A.D. Most think it was in the 90s A.D. Uh, during domination's, domination's reign of, 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 uh, of, what's that place called? Rome. Domination's rule of Rome. It's not 100% if it was in the 60s or the 90s. Either way, it was a long time ago. Soon means when it takes place, it's going to happen fast. It's going to feel fast. And our life is fast. So it's soon going to take place. Because at the end of a life and the beginning of this final revealing is going to be like that to all of us. So it must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. John implicates a couple of times here that he's on the Isle of Patmos exiled because that he won't quit preaching Jesus. That's why he's in trouble. And then verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed are those who study and do what this book says. But when I bring Revelation up, what do you do? Isn't that funny that Satan has done that to us? That we have allowed that to become our mindset when it comes to a book in God's word. We think revelation and we think, Ugh, pick someone else. Let's go somewhere else. But, but the own letter itself says, blessed are those who read this and, and who hear and heed, which means listen and do what this letter says to do. We need to listen to and put into practice what this book talks about and be blessed because of it. And then in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. These seven churches are, are in modern day Turkey is, is what this is referring to. That's what Asia meant in, in the Roman times. It doesn't mean Asia like China, so don't let that confuse you. Excuse me. John writes this letter to real churches going through and about to experience even more persecution. They're going through really, real hard times. He's writing it to real people. This isn't some fancy, trumped-up, crazy letter about some fantasy world where good and evil have a war to the death. This is a letter to seven churches and to the church, us now here to this day, that reminds us that living for Jesus is hard Evil is terrible and causes really bad things to happen. So don't lose heart. And at the end of it all, whether you're pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or a no-trib rapture, whether you're premillennial, post-millennial, amillennial, whether you're a dispensationalist or historical premillennialist, in the end, Jesus wins. Amen. That's the point. John continues saying here, from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. Oh, I love that phrase. From the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Is Jesus the only person that's ever been resurrected? No, he's not. Why is he called the firstborn of the dead then, the firstborn of the resurrection? Because he's the only one that's ever been resurrected so far to never die again. He's the firstborn of the dead. Lazarus died again. He still got another resurrection to take place. At the end of verse 5, he says this, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here, here is something that we must daily remind ourselves of, church, daily. 
I know I have to do it daily. I assume you're somewhere close to my humanity. Jesus loves us and released us from our sins. That means from its power, the power of its slavery and the power of death. He has released us by his blood. Amen. We're a kingdom now already, this says. He has made us to be a kingdom now already here. We, we are to bring heaven to earth now by living his way not as the world says to live. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It continues in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. John finishes his introduction here of this letter by turning our minds to Daniel's vision. Of the Son of Man, which we covered ad nauseum a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus being the Son of Man. Coming on the clouds, references Daniel chapter 7. He came in private the first time, church. He came in private and revealed himself in a limited way just to those who saw him. He's coming back publicly. He's coming back publicly. And he's going to reveal himself to all. For all to see. Ain't going to be no hiding. When Jesus comes back this next time. It's going to be quite the sight. And then Jesus says. To finish out this introduction. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Says the Lord God. As he's coming on the clouds. Who is and who was. And who is to come. The Almighty. Jesus' words. John using to finish out his introduction. He's the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. For those of you that don't know. Most of you do. Alpha and Omega being the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It would be like saying he's from the A to the Z. He's the beginning to the end and everything in between. He's the beginning and the end, the almighty God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is the eternal God. The eternal God is coming, boys. That's what John's saying. He's encouraging the church because the church is going through hard times. And even if the church, like as a whole, is going through good times, there's still individuals that make up the church going through hard times right here today, right now. And we need encouragement. And that's what this book does. We need to spend time in this book and stop being scared of it. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, John now talking. And I heard before me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. There's different ways to pronounce those words, and I usually try to pick the version of the pronunciation that I think will bother Dusty the most. Thank you. I knew it. I knew it had. I knew it. <laughs> John says that I heard behind me a loud voice. It, this thing is beginning to happen. He doesn't see something first. He hears it first. It's interesting to me. It, it's not he neither here nor there today, but he hears like a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, telling him what to do first, and then he sees things. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, which are to represent the seven churches. So Jesus is standing as the Son of Man in the midst of these seven golden lampstands, which represent these seven churches that he's sending these letters to. And in the middle of the lampstands, verse 13... 
And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and his hair, picture this, church. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace to make it basically indestructible. And his voice like the sound of cascading waters. Anybody here ever been to Niagara Falls? A few of us went there on a mission trip one time. When you're up at the top of it, the, it it's, it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. You can hear the water. You can see it. It's like, man, this is really cool. I'm so glad we came here. A little underwhelming from what I've heard about, but it's still cool from up here at the top. But when you go down to the bottom and you get on that boat and you ride that boat close to that water and you think you're fixing to die, and then you hear the sound of the cascading waters, that changed the way I looked at this verse when that happened. It's deafening what cascading waters sound like. Where was I? That wasn't in my notes either. Picture this guy. His head, do you picture Jesus with white hair, like wool, with fiery eyes, with bronze feet? Or do you picture him as the wimpy guy in the European poster from the Renaissance, painting from the Renaissance? I just wonder, because I think it matters what we picture when we picture him. Do you know this Jesus, this guy that's being described right here, this son of man, this conquering Messiah? Right here specifically, this priestly intermediary, John is painting him as the priest, that is the intermediary between God the Father and us, always and forever, the high priest forevermore. Do you picture him as the victorious King Jesus that this letter paints him as? Because that's what Scripture says he is and is coming back as. What does this guy look like? We don't know for sure. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter. I picture him kind of like this, church. I picture him like that. This is artificial intelligence, Daniel's instructions, Marvel version Jesus from Revelation 19. You put Revelation 19 cues into an artificial intelligent uh, art maker and say, do it in the theme of Marvel, and this is what it spits out. I've had that on my computer now for a little over a month. It fires me up every time I look at it. Now, I don't know if he has both biceps and triceps like that. I don't know. He was a carpenter. I figure he's preached out, dude. I don't know. But I darn sure don't picture him as pale, white-faced, blue-eyed, wimpy Jesus. I don't picture him like that because that's not who he is. I, the Jesus that I read in this scripture is a Jesus that's going to conquer when he comes back. I'm looking forward to that day. Now, I'll be honest with you, church, that's probably 0% accurate. I mean 0% accurate. But it's better than the wimpy Jesus that the world's convinced some of you that he is. It is. It's better than that. Verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. It's a new year. Same Jesus. But do you know this Jesus, this same Jesus, the one who has always been, is that the Jesus, the eternal God Jesus, the Jesus that says he has the seven stars in his hand? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. 
John goes on to tell us just in a few verses. This Jesus is big enough to have the seven angels of the seven churches in his hand. The sharp double-edged sword that came from his mouth symbolizes the power of the word of God to judge. Because he's going to come back and judge. Because he has the right to do so. The son of man's face shining like the sun was another reminder to John of what he had already seen with his own eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus showed his glory to Peter, James, and John temporarily. This Jesus is so big, literally and figuratively, that he is holding in his hand seven angels of the seven churches. He's not defenseless baby Jesus. That's how he came to us, but that's not who he is. He's not wimpy, docile, shepherd Jesus petting a little lamb. He's so much bigger and better than that. And when you see this Jesus that's being described here, and even more greatly as Revelation goes on, when you see this Jesus in all his glory and in all his splendor and in all his power, what do you do? What are you going to do? Are you going to walk up to him? And dap him up like he's your boy? <laughs> no, you're not. You're going to do just like John did. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's the awe of God. That's the awe of God. That's the awe that we ought to picture Jesus with. When John saw this in a vision... Because if he'd have seen it for real, he would have fell at his feet like a dead man because he would have been dead. Because an unholy man cannot stand in front of holy God. Thanks be to Jesus that that's even going to be possible one day. The awe of God. We have no business in his presence. None. Zilch. We do not deserve to have access to God. But God wants us to have it. This is how John responded. And how... Does this holy God respond? In spite of all John's sinfulness and your sinfulness and my sinfulness, yet in spite of all that, how does he respond? He tells us. And he placed his right hand on me saying, there it is again. It always pops up, doesn't it? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades, which means the grave, Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. This is Jesus, church. The guy who has the ability to conquer Satan, death, hell, and the grave and also has the grace to place his right hand on John. Tell him, don't be afraid. It's all good. Stand up. Then maybe you can dap him up after that. This is Jesus. This is the revelation that we're going to be studying on January 17th at 11 a.m. This is the revelation that John wrote to encourage the seven churches in Asia who were about to undergo and were already experiencing some serious persecution. And John was encouraging them to stay in the fight. Revelation is a letter to the church to encourage her to run her race well. To stay in the fight till the end. To never get so down that we think Satan has won. Because he hasn't. And he won't. Because he's a loser. 
because he's lost. He just hasn't admitted it yet. But he will. Because Jesus is big enough to defeat him. Because on the cross and proven by the empty tomb, he already has defeated him. So we come to one last question. Is your Jesus big enough? The Jesus you picture, the Jesus you think you're worshiping, the Jesus that you say that you come here to sing to and sing about, the Jesus that you say your, na- your life is submitted to, the Jesus you say you pray to, the Jesus you say you live for, is your Jesus big enough? The Jesus you claim to worship, is he big enough? Is he big enough to fit his final revealing here in Revelation? Or, or, or is he just in your small, comfortable box that you put God in? Now, this is where a lot of preachers would say, if you want to have a big enough Jesus, then you ought to be serving at church. You need to sign up to help in the nursery. You need to sign up to help on Wednesday nights with kids and students. You need to sign up for a Sunday morning, Sunday school Bible study. You need to try to give every so often and maybe open your Bible once in a while. If your Jesus was big enough, you'd do that. But that's not what I'm here to say this morning because I ain't most preachers. I'm saying even if your tiny Jesus, even if you have this tiny little Jesus, you ought to be doing that. Are you kidding me? This tiny Jesus that you keep in your tiny little box that's safe and comfortable, you ought to at least be doing those things for that tiny little Jesus. That's what I'm telling you. Here's what I'm saying. Is your Jesus big enough to humble you to complete submission? Humble you to the point that you abandon your life to him? I don't care. Sunday school? Really? We're going to come in here and talk about you ought, to be, you ought to be in Sunday school. There you go. You ought to be giving. You ought to be serving. Tiny little baby Jesus give you enough power to do that. That's foregone conclusion. I'm asking you, is your Jesus big enough for you to forgive even the person that doesn't deserve your forgiveness? Did you forget how Jesus forgave you? Is your Jesus big enough for you to hold your tongue even when someone deserves the tongue lashing that you want to give them? It takes a big Jesus to do that. Trust me. I failed at it about 47 times in the last two weeks, mostly at that gym over there. Is your your Jesus big enough for you to sacrifice some material comforts in this world so that you can finally make a difference in this world? We want to bring heaven to earth. His kingdom come. Do we think that's going to come easily? We talked about this at our December business meeting. In December, we talked about this at our business meeting. We've got about 50 consistent givers in this church, okay? I don't know who you are. That's between you and the Lord. I asked Jessica to, Jessica to give me a number. So couples counting as one or individuals counting as one, about 50 people consistently give in this church to make it go because it takes money to make it go. If just those 50 people, not the rest of you, enjoying the coffee and the air conditioning and the heating and the lighting and all that stuff, all for free, every week, not you guys, but those 50 people that are already given. If those 50 people would just give $25 more a week, 
we would meet and exceed our 2024 budget by about $30,000. Now, is that number the end-all, be-all? No. It represents what we can do in ministry. It represents what we can do in ministry. Is your Jesus big enough? Is your Jesus big enough for you to finally go to that person in this church or in this town that you hurt a week ago or a year ago or a decade or two ago and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong? Is your Jesus big enough for that? Is your Jesus big enough for you to tell somebody about him or what he's done for your life? Or has he not done much for your life lately because you try and keep him in your small, safe little box? Is your Jesus big enough for this church to do something extraordinary in 2024? Because it is a new year. And it's the same Jesus. The question is, are you following, serving, and worshiping the real Jesus? Or just your safe little version of him? We have a word for that. When you're worshiping your safe little version, that's called an idol. We're going to sing to that Jesus right now to finish this day. Maybe today you finally want to get right with this Jesus. I pray you do. Dusty and Stuart, if you'll be here in the front to receive anybody that might want to do that. Altars open if you need to do business with the Lord. We'll sing this song to finish up. <laughs>